And the question for us is, are we making decisions in our lives with Jesus that will set us up to end well also? And so remember the book of Judges is a giant picture that says when we do what is right in our own eyes, things go wrong. The book of Judges is a book that shows that we need a king to guide us, that we need a savior to deliver us, but not just any king or savior will do. And so we've been working on verse uh, 25 of chapter 21 of the book of Judges is our verse of the series. Let's say that to each other, reminding each other of a healthy summary of what the book of Judges is about. Let's say that together. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let me pray for us as we jump into Judges chapter 8 and see that very thing lived out. Father, we pray that we would remember your faithful, steadfast work so that we would not confuse our own mission and our own priorities and our own living for what you are doing in us. And so, Father, we just pray that through Judges chapter 8, we would see our great need for the best king, for King Jesus. Would he shine through Judges 8, even though he doesn't come onto the scene for thousands of years later. Father, we pray that you would, would help us to see how great of a king Jesus is, even as we look at Judges 8. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here's the big idea that we want you to walk away with this morning. Here it is. Remember the steadfast work of God. In fact, that's what we need to do. We need to remember the steadfast work of God so that we don't confuse idolatry with faithfulness to God. And if you think those seem like they are on different sides of the polar extremes, you will see this morning on how they are actually so easily confused together. So we need to remember the steadfast work of God so we don't confuse idolatry with faithfulness to God. And we're going to look at chapter 8, even though it's 35 verses, we're going to look at it in two parts. We're going to look at Israel's deliverance in the first 21 verses. And then the second half, we're going to look at Israel's continued slavery. And because it is such a long chapter, we are uh, going to be referencing it. If your Bible is open, it's going to be helpful as we are looking through it. We're not going to read through the whole chapter this morning. Uh, but uh, we are going to be highlighting exactly what Susan was reading for us this morning. So let's look at the beginning of chapter 8 of Israel's deliverance. This is finishing up the story that we started back in chapter 6 that Jay started for us in the life of Gideon. So remember last week, Gideon took 300 men to battle against a 130,000 soldier army. And in that battle, 100,000 Midianite soldiers were dead and Gideon is chasing the remaining 12,000 soldiers. He called out all of Israel to take part in finishing the battle. The battle is basically over. Israel has won, but not by Gideon's powerful sword, but by God's rescuing hand. And you'd think that all of Israel would be grateful since Gideon sent 22,000 of the soldiers home 
who didn't have to go to battle because they were afraid. And so instead of national unity, we actually begin to see Israel divided against Israel. The men of Ephraim in our passage in verse 1 are accusing Gideon fiercely. Well, why have you left us out of this battle that we do not get to share in that glory with you? They're uh, accusing Gideon of leaving them out. And if we remember Judges 6 and 7, we know it had nothing to do with Gideon's military strategy. It had everything to do with God's plan for God to receive the glory. But interestingly enough, Gideon didn't say, well, this is what the Lord called me to do. Instead, he flatters them by belittling his work and emphasizing their greatness as a tribe. His statement, if you read it, might seem a little bit confusing because he talks about grapes and a harvest, and you're like, what is going on? But his statement is not literally about grapes or harvests. Ephraim was already seen as a great tribe of Israel, and so their reputation wasn't at stake. That, that, that's basically what he's saying. But it's an interesting response that Gideon has when they are angry and upset with him, either for wrong or for good reasons. And it makes us question that same thing this morning ourselves. How do we respond to anger? How do you respond when people are angry with you, either wrongly or rightly? We usually escalate the problem, right? When someone's angry at us, it's easy to take the elevator or escalator to the next level, and we just make things worse. But Gideon here, he speaks in a way that calms them down. He doesn't make it worse. Uh, this actually goes right along with what the Bible says about how a soft answer turns away wrath. It's a Bible verse that we repeat a lot in the Moffat household. Um, in fact, I ask my children, hey, what, is, what does the Bible say about a soft answer? And they say it so often they roll their eyes at me now. <laughs> but it's really true. And we see Gideon exercising that. Gideon spoke in a way that helped the situation. He didn't make it worse. Christian, do you do that? You know, one sign of Christian maturity and love is when instead of making a situation worse, we speak in a way that makes it better, with the goal of unity, and remembering that we are not on opposite sides of each other. We are part of the family here at Friendship. We are committed to each other and for each other's spiritual good. And so our speech, brothers and sisters, our speech is called to make situations better, not worse. Even a bad judge like Gideon knew that. The question is, do we? The result, as we see, is that Ephraim's anger is subsided, and in verse 3, the tensions are eased. Gideon then, with his 300 men, continue in pursuit of the remaining of the Midianite army. They cross out of the Promised Land into the jo over the Jordan River, uh, and, and Gideon leaves the region of Manasseh, and he goes into the tribe of Gad. Now remember, Gad was one of those tribes that did not take their part of the Promised Land over the Jordan River. They stayed on the other side of the Jordan River. And so Gideon takes his 300 men over the Jordan River, out of the Promised Land, back into the tribe of Gad. And he is looking for help from the tribe of Gad. Uh, of Gad. And you know, I, in this, I, I kind of 
picture, my, I think my life is, is a constant reel of Lord of the Rings. And so in this, I just think of Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn chasing after the pack of orcs in the middle earth in Lord of the Rings. Okay, that's what's happening here. Gideon's men are exhausted, yet pursuing. The phrase keeps coming. They're exhausted, yet they're still pursuing. And so they came to the town of Succoth looking for provisions and for help. And Gideon expected to obtain supplies from the other Israelite cities, but that's the total opposite of what happens. Not only did the men of Succoth and then also the, 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 the town of Penuel, not only did they not help, instead they insulted Gideon and belittled his struggle. The men of Succoth said to Gideon in verse 6, are the hands of Zeba and oh, sorry, are the heads of Zebulah and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? See, the kings Zeba and Zalmunna were still alive. They still had 12,000 soldiers. Gideon still only had 300. And so in those other Israelites' minds, why change sides if we might actually ultimately lose? And so then Gideon goes in verse 8 to the next city of Penuel, and he basically gets the same answer from them as well. The men of Succoth and Penuel were from the tribe of Gad. It was their obligation to help their exhausted brothers who are waging war with their common enemy. Not to mention, it was God's very commandment to drive these people out of the promised land in the first place. But the men of Sakoth and Penuel neither feared God nor cared about their bond with other Israelite tribes. Can you imagine for a moment of your brother's family or maybe your sister's grown kids when you ask them for help, they don't side with you and said they side against you? What a sad picture displaying the breakdown of unity within the people of God. Israel isn't siding with Israel. They're siding with Israel's enemy. Do you notice what the men of Sakath and Penuel seem to misunderstand about the battle? They thought that Gideon had brought the victory and kept them away from sharing in that victory when all along it had been God. God was the one who gave the victory. The whole reason God only allowed Gideon to take 300 men with him was because God was to get the glory. God is the ultimate deliverer of Israel, not Gideon. God was who they were missing in the equation. They failed to see God at work in their lives, and therefore they sided with the enemy. Brothers and sisters, we need to see and trust the hand of God. I wonder how often we are like the men of Sakath. Have we failed to see God as part of the equation of our lives to where we fail to even see his work around us and in us? In your life is the only determining factor only the things that you can control? When we think of what is around us and all that there is, is all that there is, and we make decisions based upon only what we can control, then we are removing God from the equation and we will end up making decisions 
and taking sides against God. Brothers and sisters, in every circumstance that we face, remember that God is at work in your life, believer, and therefore is part of the equation and the one who delivers his people. We may not have the heads of our enemies in our hands, but it doesn't mean that God isn't with us. We need to remember the Lord and all he has done for us for our faith to be active today. Do you notice a different Gideon at this point? Notice Gideon's harsh words in verses 7 and 9. He may have given a soft answer to the Ephraimites, but here in verse 7 and 9, uh, we would definitely say Gideon did not give a soft answer when being confronted with their betrayal. He says, uh, When the Lord has given Zabah and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I don't even know what that means. But it sounds bad, right? Uh, and look at verse 9. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Gideon's words are almost laughable there, right? When I come in peace, I will bring destruction. Midian still had over 10,000 soldiers, but the violence is Israel on Israel. So then we jump to the next scene. Zebah and Zalmunna are with their army of 15,000 men. 120,000 had already died. We find out later in verse 10. They crossed the Jordan River. They may have fled, but Gideon hadn't stopped. This time, Gideon didn't need to wait for a word of the Lord. Zabah and Zalmunna thought that they were secure, but Gideon attacked and threw the entire army into panic. And so Zabah and Zalmunna fled again, but this time they're captured. Now, I don't know about you, but usually when I say something in the heat of the moment that I shouldn't have, and I have a chance to walk it back later, thankfully, I do sometimes, uh, I usually don't do what I said I was going to do once my mind is thinking clearly again. Gideon, promising to retaliate against his own people at Sakoth and Penuel, could have walked back now that he's being level-headed. But the blood wasn't even dry on his sword before Gideon was back on the warpath. This time, it wasn't against the Midianites, it was against Israel, his own people. Gideon captures a young man at Sakoth. He confirms the number of elders and leaders, and he takes them out back to teach them a lesson, it says in verse 16. Oh. Gideon should have been celebrating in the capturing of Zabah and Zalmunna instead of looking for revenge. In fact, the language in verse 16 gives an indication that the type of lesson that they received was a lesson of death. They taunted, uh, sorry, uh, for the men of Penuel, Gideon just killed all the men of the city. So much for a soft answer in, in, when turning away wrath. And so these kings taunt Gideon, but he would have the last laugh. The retaliation and punishment was drastic and it fit the terrible offense in Gideon's eyes. For all the good that Gideon had done in delivering Israel, 
He's quickly oppressing Israel with his own form of justice. You guys see that? The scene changes again. And now Gideon is before King Zabah and Zalmunna. Ultimately, Gideon kills them because his son wouldn't do it. Now up to this point, we thought Gideon's primary concern had been the deliverance of his people Israel from the oppressing Midianites. But look at verse 18 and 19 with me. Do you notice it's a little bit more complicated than that? It turns out Gideon needed information from these kings because they had killed Gideon's brothers. He asked them who they killed, and they said, guys, just like you. See, it was actually no longer about God getting glory or delivering God's people. Gideon was actually pursuing his own agenda. Gideon wanted blood revenge for the death of his brothers. If they had not killed his brothers, he tells them in verse 19, he would not have killed them. If those who died were Gideon's brothers, then they were also Gideon's son's uncles. And he would have a reason for blood revenge. But when told by Gideon to kill them, Gideon's son wouldn't do it. Brothers and sisters, our revenge does not work alongside the glory of God. God is not glorified when we seek our own imperfect justice. God is not glorified. Remember, that was the whole reason why the, the army was whittled down to 300, is so that God would get the glory. But God is not glorified when, in the name of God, we take on our own mission. Our revenge does not work alongside the glory of God. God is glorified when we trust him with his perfect justice. God is glorified when instead of creating our own mission, we live for God's great commission, making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. So brothers and sisters, if you have been wronged, determining your own justice doesn't honor God. Before you decide what justice needs to look like, seek out counsel from a mature believer and let them give wisdom to guide your steps. Because God is faithful. You don't have to exact your own justice. God actually answers the problem of evil in the world and injustice in the world in the person of Jesus, who was perfect, who had never done anything wrong, and yet he received unjust punishment. He received our punishment. He didn't deserve it. And so God is actually bringing all things right. He is both the just and the justifier through the work of Jesus, Paul says. Brothers and sisters, remember the steadfast work of God so we don't confuse idolatry with faithfulness to God. Let's look at the second half of the chapter. 
uh, what Susan read for us earlier this morning. Apparently, using company resources for your own personal agenda by Gideon was overlooked by the people of Israel because the bottom line to them was Israel was saved. Okay, the Midianites were no longer a threat thanks to Gideon. Israel would stay safe if Gideon was in charge. And besides, if Gideon didn't like them, maybe they'd end up like the city of Sakoth and Penuel also. So they asked Gideon to rule over them, to be their king. And in verse 23, we think that Gideon is refusing. But his, in his refusal is really like this uh, acceptance that's, that's hidden in this form of this pious refusal in order to gain favor with his subjects. In verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Which is a great thing to say, if you actually do it. And we're going to see he actually does the opposite. Gideon said no, 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 no. But then the very next thing he does is he asks for 1,700 shekels of gold. Uh, which is about 70 pounds of gold. And, and what does Gideon do with it? He creates an ephod of gold. Well, if you're like, well, what's an ephod? Well, there's a couple possibilities. Okay, uh, it's most likely a, a garment after the pattern of the high priest who wore this ephod that was, had lots of gold. He would wear it when, when he was uh, going into the Holy of Holies, when he was making intercession to God once a year uh, on behalf of the people of Israel. Okay, so that's a possibility. Another possibility is like this freestanding image. Okay, uh, think, think of like um, Aaron at Mount Sinai, when he makes that golden calf, this could be something pretty similar to that also. But what we see is it became an object of worship to, uh, to a people who were only one stage removed from polytheism anyway, and it was something that they worshipped. And it became like a snare to the people of Israel. The ephod, which was originally assigned to Israel, that the high priest wore it when interceding for Israel to God, but now it wasn't being used as a sign of God's favor. It ensnared Israel. It became a, an idol that corrupted Israel's hearts and something that Israel replaced God with. They were willing to do anything for it. It became not a sign of Gideon's power, but actually a sign of his corruption. Look at what it, how it describes the influence on Gideon's family. In verse 27, it did not just ensnare Gideon, it ensnared his entire family. It was a snare to him and his family. What a, what a humble warning, parents, that we are to live so that our choices are not a snare to the rest of our family. Idols in our lives are not just mini statues made of gold. They are anything that we have elevated to a status in our lives that only God should have. So how do we know whether we have idols in our hearts and in our lives? Well, I think a diagnostic question to, to use is if I'm willing to sin in order to get it, to get it that's probably an idol. Or if I'm willing to sin if I don't get what I want, that's also probably an idol. 
So, so uh, brothers and sisters, by our weekly schedule, where does God compare on our list of priorities when compared to family or compared to sports? What we too highly value, we easily pass on to our family. If we live for money, so will our family. If we live for power, so will our family. If we put family over God, we are modeling that family is more important than God himself. Gideon's choices became a snare to his entire family. So parents, make a pattern in your lives of God first and then family. Keep your family more important than your job, but not more important than God. Gideon may have brought in an idol for Israel to worship, but the passage does say that Israel had rest for 40 years. Maybe you're here this morning, and you have found your way to friendship, and you're not a Christian here this morning, and you're trying to figure out what you think about God in the first place. And you've come upon us and Judges 8 today, and you're just thinking, wow, that is something. You know what's interesting? We have, everyone has lots of ideas of what's best for our country. But both sides have the goal of rest and a peaceful life in our land. But the reality is, Israel had peace and rest in their land for 40 years, but they were not at rest with God. They actually needed a king who would not just bring rest to the land, but rest from God with them, rest in God for them. We do not just need peace and rest in this land. We need peace with God, which Gideon never provided for Israel. Gideon actually makes things worse for Israel. More than peace in our land, we need peace with God. And that only happens through Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one who made peace by his blood being poured out for us. Peace in the land doesn't last long. Jesus offers a peace that will last forever. Jesus is the type of king that doesn't bring oppression or idolatry, but peace with Jesus brings life and brings freedom in himself. And so if you are wondering, well, what does Jesus do that, that any political campaign doesn't already do? Well, actually, Jesus follows through. Jesus brings eternal peace and eternal freedom, the very things that, that we actually all, as a country, actually really want. So come to Jesus in faith and know an eternal peace. If that's you this morning, come find me afterward. I'd love to talk more about what it means to know the peace of God in Jesus. We come upon the last section of our chapter, verses 29 to 35. And really, it's a really bad ending. It's a really sad ending to what should have been a glorious deliverance. God had dwindled down Israel's army to 300 to overtake 120,000 Midianite soldiers. It was all for the glory of God. It should have been incredible. 
They should be writing songs about this. And yet the deliverance was nothing more than a worse slavery. Peace in the land did not mean peace with God. A deliverer of physical peace brought treachery into the land. Israel wanted a leader who would keep the land peaceful, but they needed a king that would unite them to God. Why would Gideon have 70 sons? Anyone else read that and go, huh? Well, it's protection for his bloodline. Protection from someone else to come in and rule. So much for him saying that the Lord would rule over them. One of his sons from his concubine is named Abimelech. We'll look more at that next week. Uh, but Abimelech's name means my father is king. Interesting from the guy who said he would not rule over them. But takes their gold, creates a harem, and even calls his son, my dad is king. What a sad ending to Gideon's life. He reintroduced idol worship to Israel. He made himself king, but not by the hand of God. Brothers and sisters, we need to both start and end well in our Christian lives. It's not enough for our lives to begin well. We must end well also. Gideon did not finish well because he turned from the Lord. He thought he was entitled. Today we might hear, oh, I've lost my filter. I'm old enough now to say whatever I want. I've paid my dues. I don't have to listen to anyone anymore. I'm doing it in a certain voice. <coughs> I'm a highly valued individual and you need to listen to me now. It's a common falsehood for some seniors to believe they've earned the right to say anything that comes to their mind. Israel just asked Gideon to be king. He thought he'd arrived. He's become more important than God. Gideon is no longer following God. He's following his own agenda. So how do we finish well? Paul the Apostle, on his deathbed, displayed that he was still dependent upon God and his word. Paul stayed dependent upon God. He remembered the mercies of God. So brothers and sisters, are you making choices to remember God's mercies in your life? Not obligations, as mercies of our lives. The quickest way to end our Christian lives poorly, to shipwreck our faith, is to stop our dependence upon God. That's not an overnight decision, but lots of daily decisions of each, of each circumstance of who we are going to trust and why. Remember, brothers and sisters, you cannot end well by yourself. That's why Hebrews 12, verse 1, is so powerful. It says, Therefore we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
What an interesting phrase it has in verse 33 of our passage. As soon as Gideon died. It's a new phrase. It's showing the swiftness of going right back into rebellion against God once again. What we see is that the people of Israel were not better after Gideon. In verse 33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. Gideon was not the type of deliverer that God's people ultimately needed because he gave no real deliverance. He did not unite them to God. And do you see part of the problem in verses 34 and 35? And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember the Lord and all he has done. Do you, you know that powerful phrase describing God's mercy towards Israel? They did not remember Yahweh, who had delivered them from all their enemies on every side. Not just on one side. Not just some of the enemies. All of Israel's enemies on every side. There wasn't an enemy that God refused to deliver them from. When they cried out to God, He would deliver them. But yet so often we write about God's faithfulness in sand and our hardships written in stone, as one theologian says. And so we need to continually remind ourselves of the length of God's deliverance because we too easily forget. So brothers and sisters, let us write God's faithfulness towards us in stone so that we do not forget his mercy. Remember the steadfast work of God so that we do not confuse idolatry with faithfulness. Lots of people start well. But Jesus warns us, narrow is the gate. Wide is the path to destruction. Brothers and sisters, let us take uh, note of how Gideon did not end well. And let us, with clear gospel eyes, see how we can continue on in the faith so that we can end well, not in our own strength, but by the mercy of God. Let us be people who don't just do well for a season. Let us be people who do not give up in doing good so that we can end well the race of faith, so that we can throw off any sin that so easily entangles us. Let us do that together because we certainly can't do it alone. Let's pray. Father, the words of that gospel song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And then we say, here's my heart, Lord, 
take and seal it, seal it for thy courts alone. Father, that's the cry of our hearts, that we would, in fact, knowing our propensity to forget all that you have done for us, and knowing our propensity to, to in our age as we grow, to become more prideful, not more dependent on you, because we think we have it all figured out. Father, we pray that knowing our propensity to walk away, Father, we pray that you would cling to us, that we would cling to our Savior. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit would be at work in our hearts so that we may continue to be humble, so that we may continue to seek after you, so that we don't just start well or live well in a season, but that we would finish well to your glory and our joy. So, Father, give us no other love but you. Give us no other desire but you. Father, help us to tear off every weight and sin that so easily entangles us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.